0: I got a lock picking kit for my birthday.
1: Of course you did. Yeah. Um And who gave you said lock picking kit? My mom. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Do not
0: lock pick your way into my car. I've yet to figure it out. Well, you know, it's this this lock. Oh. So, so you I can learn to figure it out first. Before I can move on to other types of locks.
1: Mm-hmm. Becoming a real Winchester here.
0: I got, um, I almost got it the other day, but then I accidentally messed up and then they all went back to where they were, so.
1: Oh no. Mm You're sending pictures. <laughs> you're sending pictures. Oh,
0: what the heck? <laughs> I think those are good pictures. They're good. They actually are pretty good you're pictures. You're wearing flannel and there's a, a candle and it's boopy. And that, that is my thinking face. Yeah. <laughs> Which is horrible. Oh my gosh. Everybody I wants candids, you know? Yeah. True.
1: I need to make that my, uh, profile picture now. <laughs> Ow. Okay. Um, so... Let's get into it? Yes. Hello and welcome
0: back. What? 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 By the time what? this comes out, it will be fall. Te- not really, but it'll be September, and therefore fall. I am Grace. Welcome. That is Rachel. I... Welcome. I don't know why I said that for you. <laughs> <Felt right laughs> no, introduction <laughs> no introduction needed. No introduction needed. If if you don't know who we are by
1: now, what are you doing? This is the 47th episode. This...
0: You know what it is. It's myths and misfortunes. What else is yes. there to say? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, as I was typing the tags out yesterday, I almost typed in myths and mistakes.
0: <laughs> so many mistakes were made. I was like, dang, that would be a great a great name. <laughs> myths and mistakes. What would that be? Blooper reels. Uh <sighs> <laughs> keep that.
1: Yeah, myths and mistakes, blooper reels. hmm <laughs> Okay. Where are we today, Rachel? I don't even know what we're doing. Okay, so this week we are in Dunedin, New Zealand. And for my history, my sources are terra.gov.nz and wikipedia.org. Also, I'm realizing I'm trying to, like, stay away from Wikipedia because that's not the most reputable source.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm... mm, Yeah. So, my main one was terra.gov.nz. am supposed to be government. Did you say...
0: Oh, I thought you said goat. I was like, What? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, Terra Goat, New Zealand. Never know. Dunny-Din. Dunny-Dunny-Din. Nope, okay. Dunny-Din, New Zealand, was occupied by the Maori people within decades of their arrival to the island. So, you know, sometime around 1280-1320. The people, of course, stayed close to the coasts for food purposes, but gradually spread across the rest of the island, which was mainly marshland. So, not fun for farming. Mm. European contact was first made by Steelers in roughly 1790, then around 1826, two major cities. I am going to do my best with the pronunciation of these two cities, which are... Otipodi? And Pukutai. I could not find anything. Oh. And I'm sure it exists, I just, I... I mean, sometimes... <sighs> It, it, I'm it not happens. experienced enough with Google. Yep. Yeah, so, okay. These two, um, major cities actually were abandoned due to measles outbreaks and population displacement from the musket war, oh. which was a war fought between the Maori people in order to gain territory from each other. So just like civil war mm-hmm. in 1848. The city of Dunedin was founded by the free church of Scotland Originally, it was going to be called New Edinburgh, but instead just uh, came from the Gaelic name Dunedin. (laughs) Close (laughs) enough. (laughs) Look, I'm not Gaelic. (laughs) I'm very bad at it. In 1852, Dunedin became the capital of Otago province, which which is the only one of six provinces with a Maori name. Just outside of the town, a small industrial, another town, Mm -hmm. was founded by the English known as Caversham or Caversham. Who knows? They know. We don't. The Scottish and English had very strong disagreements due to their close proximity to each other, as most people would. In 1861, gold was discovered in Gabriel's Gully near Dunedin, This led to a population boom for the city as people from literally all over the world traveled there for the gold rush. The sudden population increase left many parts of the city in slum-like statuses as there was an overpopulation and lack of drainage and sanitation. After the gold rush, many businesses and institutions were established in the city. Thanks a lot to the Chinese settlers in the area. The marshy areas of South Dunedin were drained and converted to market gardens. During the after gold rush boom, the city invested in many things, including education, religion, and publics. Publics? They got a public. Public works? Huh? They got a public. <laughs> they have a publics. We do not. Uh, public works. The Otego Museum was then built in 1876. The University of Otego was built in 1878. St. Joseph's Catholic Cathedral was built in 1886. Wow. So this was all during the after-Gold Rush boom. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, as normal, a Long Depression began in 1873 and lasted until 1880, when the recession set in and... Then about mid-1890s, the gold dredging boom began, and there was more prosperity. Yay! Prosperity is prosperous. Prosperity to all. Maybe not all, but too many. In 1893, a second mass petition for women's suffrage was created, and about a third of the women in Dunedin
0: actually signed the petition. That's way less than I thought there would be. But that's still good. It's, it's more. Really? Than I thought it would be, yeah. Hmm.
1: So it's, I mean, it's a high percentage in my opinion. Especially during the time, 1893. I guess, yeah. Yep. Yeah. In 1907, the Waiapori Hydroelectric Plant in Dunedin began producing electricity. And in 1948, it became the first remote-controlled power station. It's super cool. I keep forgetting they can't see my face. I know. <laughs> Use your words. <laughs> the main roo- rude
0: the main rude bitch <laughs> is me i'm the rude bitch
1: <laughs> the main road throughout the city changed to a one-way system in 1968 with the first toll bus going into operation 18 years before in 1950 then the first cell phones came in 1983, with texting being allowed in 1998, and the first computer arrived in 1963. That's so weird to think about. <laughs> <Yeah>. I know. <laughs> Which does bring us to the present. There has been a modest population growth and business growth. Today you can visit Larnach Castle, Oteo Peninsula, the railway stations, the Otago Museum, Dunedin Botanic Garden, and all of the beaches all over the island. Go do it, like, now. As soon as, well, not now. As soon as the pandemic is over.
0: <laughs> well, if they are do open it. and they are practic- I mean, no, New Zealand's doing really, really well right now.
1: Oh, are they? Yes. Okay, so go do it now. Just, if you can't go to work after you fly, don't blame me. I
0: think the last that they- Oh, nobody- I don't think anybody's accepting us yet. Nope. <laughs> nope. But in New Zealand, they can. I think they've only had a couple of cases recently.
1: Good. Okay, well, if you can visit,
0: go ahead. Do it. Otherwise, be like the rest of us and wait. And if we have any New Zealand listeners, please send me pictures.
1: Please, and please tell us the actual way to pronounce these names that I butchered. Yes. Please.
0: Yeah, because she literally looked them up for a while and it did not help.
1: Okay, what is your story? I uh, yes. Today.
0: Today my story is um the Bain family murders which people will have heard before. It's one of the most popular cases that people talk about when it comes to mm-hmm. New Zealand and normally you know I don't like doing those. I know. but I find this one really interesting. And Good. So I just like I couldn't pass it up. Good. My sources are Wikipedia. Didn't didn't use that one that much. Medium, a medium.com article by Titty T Tidy Titty. T-t. No, it's T I D D Y. Titty. T D. <laughs> Smith. Don't giggle at their name. Uh, <laughs> you did it. Funny. <laughs> A noted article, uh, it's noted.co.nz, uh, article by mm-hmm. Jonathan Coulin- Coulinane, Coulinane and Kevin Sturgeon in Murderpedia, which has a bunch of different, uh, sources, sources yeah. as you know. There were some others, but I did not want to include them, and I'll tell you later why. Um, okay. This was actually a lot longer than I intended. I just started researching and writing, and I got to a point where I looked down and saw I had nine pages. Eight pages? Oh, I thought it was eight pages. It is now. Um, Oh, okay. So I shortened it to eight. Okay. There's still quite a bit that I wish I could have included, but... But? But it would have lasted a long time. There's also a podcast that i want to listen to and i suggest other people listen to called black hands uh, mass family murder that is supposed to be really good and i obviously like i said i didn't have time to listen to it and it's all about that case
1: okay i have saved that so i can listen to it
0: when i get a chance okay robin irving bain and margaret arawa cullen were married in 1969 in dunedin new They had four children, David, Arwa, Lonnie, and Stephen. Robin worked as a missionary teacher in Papua New Guinea from 1974 to 1988 before moving back to Dunedin. Three years after they returned to New Zealand, Robin became a principal of nearby Taiari Beach School. Mm-hmm. By June of 1994, the family had moved to 65 Every Street, Anderson's Bay, Dunedin. Robin and Margaret had separated at this point, and Robin no longer slept in the house. Instead, he slept in the back of his van, which was usually parked at the school. (laughs) And three nights a week, he actually slept in the schoolhouse itself. But on the weekends, he would head home where he slept in a caravan in the back garden, which is, like, a lot of people's goals these days to live in, like, a... Tiny houses in the garden. Oh, in the van. Yeah. (laughs) The oldest of their children, David, was studying music and classics at Otago University and had a part-time job delivering the morning newspaper. Aroa was attending a teacher's training college and Stephen was in high school. Laniate had a part-time job in Dunedin and lived away from home, but came home the weekend of June 19th to attend a family meeting. On the morning of June 20th, 1994, David Bain called 111, which is the New Zealand version of 911, yeah. at 7.09 a.m. and told the operator, they're all dead, they're all dead. Oh no. When the police arrived, they found five of the six Bain family had been shot to death. Mm-hmm. Robin was 58, Margaret was 50, Aro was 9, Lennie was 18, and Stephen was 14. Mm. The most violent death seemed to be Stephen, who was partially strangled as well as shot. A message was found typed on a computer that said, Sorry, you're the only one who deserved to stay, seemingly suggesting that Robin had murdered the family and killed himself, leaving David behind. I now know the story. Yes. Now you know the story. Okay. Initially, police worked under the impression that Robin had killed his family, leaving behind his eldest son. But that didn't last very long, and just four days later, David, who was 22 at the time, was arrested and charged on with five counts of murder. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there was more than one trial in this case. David Bain's first trial lasted three weeks in May of 1995. The Crown suggested that Bain shot his mother, two sisters, and brother to death before going on the paper run. And on his return, he waited for his father to come in from the caravan, go into the lounge to pray... And then shot him from behind the computer alcove curtain. And mm-hmm. then he typed the message on the computer, arranged the scene to look like a suicide, and called 911. Called 111. <laughs> and called emergency services. Called emergency services. Yep. David said that that's not what happened. His story was that he woke up at his usual time, put on his running shoes and his yellow newspaper bag, and went on his paper run with a dog. He arrived back around 6.42, 6.43 a.m., coming through the front door and went to his room, all without turning on the lights. He took the look on your face.
1: I can't do that. I can't either. Something's going to come chasing after me. <laughs> but
0: to be fair, we also don't have all of the lights off. We yeah. never have all of the lights off. We have yeah, at least and you one. turn at
1: least one on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we
0: always have at least one or two on because my mom works nights, so. Anyway, he took off the newspaper bag and his shoes in his room and went downstairs to the bathroom to wash his hands, which were covered in ink from the newsprint. Yeah. He put some of his clothes in the washing machine, including the sweatshirt he wore on his paper run the past week. He went back upstairs to his room and turned on the light, And this is when he says he noticed bullets in a trigger lock from his rifle on the floor of his bedroom. He went to his mother's room, finding her dead, then ran to the other rooms where he found his other siblings, including Lennie, gurgling. Mm. Yeah, and found his father dead in the lounge as well. And then he called emergency services in distress. Basically, his story is that... While he was on his paper out, Robin, the father, killed the f- other family members, typed the message, and shot himself. The main motive put forward by the Crown was that, if David did it, like they say, was that he was set to inherit money that the parents had set aside for a new house, mm-hmm. but if David didn't do it, then why would Robin? Well, yeah. In a formal yeah. statement... A man named Dean Cottle, who said he was a friend of Laniatt, said that she had confided in him that her father had been sexually abusing her. And it's thought that Laniatt had called the family meeting that weekend and was going to expose her father in front of the whole family.
1: The whole family, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm. Cottle failed to show up at court when called, and when he did turn up, he was found unreliable as a witness, and the judge- the justice ruled against admission of his testimony- The defense instead submitted that Robin was a proud school teacher who had been rejected by his family and snapped after months of pressure. That didn't convince the jury, and David Bain was sentenced on five counts of murder to life imprisonment with a 16-year non-parole period. Mm -hmm. David Bain maintains his innocence and has actually got a shit ton of supporters behind him. Like, a lot. I'm sure. A rugby player named does it, Wait, hold on. Yeah, does he have that pretty boy thing going on? No. Oh, never
1: mind. <laughs> I know you. That is he's one attractive. easy way so to get supporters. Like, oh,
0: he would never. Yeah. No, I mean he's not particularly attractive in my eyes. But, okay. I would agree. Not attractive. Okay. So, sir, sir, <laughs> sir, 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 please. Okay, <laughs> that's what I was just thinking. Okay, a rugby player named Joe Karam felt that something was wrong with the case and spearheaded a campaign to ha- have Bain's convictions overturned. Mm-hmm. He visited Bain in prison over two hundred times and wrote four books about the case. That's a lot. In 1995, lot. an appeal was filed as to whether the trial judge had made a mistake in refusing to admit Caudle's testimony. The court refused on the grounds that the Crown case appeared strong and that the defense's theory wasn't plausible. In 1998, Bain petitioned the Governor General for a pardon, which was passed on to the Ministry of Justice. In 2000, Justice Minister Phil Goff said that the investigation had shown a number of errors that have occurred in the Crown's case against Bain. It was referred to the Court of Appeal for a full hearing in 2003. The court wasn't persuaded that there had been a miscarriage of justice and the appeal was dismissed. Mm-hmm. Karam stated in his books that... This makes me mad. I mean, not really. I just... I have very conflicting feelings on this case. About it, yeah. So Karam stated in his books that David's innocence is the only possible conclusion and that he was totally innocent. But... We'll get into it, yeah. Okay. Karam was subsequently described in some media as like a freedom fighter... Bain appealed again and in 2006 the Privy Council, which I don't know what a Privy Council is, but we're going with it, agreed to hear Bain. Is it like the um it's like a review review board, I
1: guess. I have mm-hmm. no idea. A body of advisors or private counselors appointed by a sovereign
0: or a governor general. That was real clear. So, yeah, super clear, right? No. Uh it's fine. So the Privy Council Council the Privy council. council agreed to hear Bain's appeal <laughs> <laughs> on May tenth, two thousand and seven, the council overturned his convictions pending a retrial. Nine of the like biggest, most important items were reviewed by the Privy Council, and they are as follows: one, mm-hmm. Robin Bain's mental state. The jury wasn't told mm-hmm. that Robin Bain was apparently kind of disturbed. Yep. Uh, he had reportedly hit a student at the school where he was the principal and had published brutal and sadistic children's stories in the school newsletter, one of which involved a serial murder of members of the family. That's sketchy. Yeah. Also, like, foreshadowing. Come on. A little, yeah. Alright. A little bit. Two was motive. Like I said before, Lania had apparently told a friend just before the killings that she was planning on confronting her parents- about her father sexually abusing her, and this had been previously ruled inadmissible, like I said, but since then two other people had apparently come forward stating that she had also told them about the sexual abuse, and another two had given support supporting statements. 3 Bloody sock prints. Mm-hmm. So the prints from a right sock soaked in blood were detected using luminol in Margaret's room. They all seem to be from the same foot, measuring at around 280 millimeters in length. These were apparently in places where it was thought Robin wouldn't have gone under the Crown's theory of events. In the previous trial, the evidence was suggested to be David's. However, the jury wasn't told that Robin's feet were 270 millimeters in length, and measurements showed that David's th- feet were three hundred millimeters in length. Oh, so not David's. Probably not,
1: mm. unless he squeezed
0: his foot. Unless into he squeezed his feet very, a very shoe small and then put a sock. Yeah, yeah. For the time the computer was switched on, mm-hmm. the jury was told and later reminded by a judge that the computer was turned on at precisely six forty-four p.m. just after David had returned home, but the exact time wasn't precisely recorded and honestly could have been turned on as early as six thirty nine. yeah so like right before he came right so like his entire family could have died just right before then he could have literally just shot himself or the father yeah. could have literally just shot himself and then there's the time that david returned home Someone was seen passing a motorist entering the gate at 65 every street at 6.45 a.m. The reliability of the time was doubted by the jury because they weren't told that the police had checked the car's clock. They also weren't told that there was a second statement made by the motorist that the person she saw had a, a yellow bag over their shoulder. Um uh. yeah. There was also these pair of glasses that, in like the grand scheme of things, don't Really shed a lot of. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Light I remember on, like, who
0: actually committed the murders, but they shed a little bit of doubt on. You'll see. So, the gla- there were a pair of glasses that were found in David's room, which had the left lens missing. That lens mm-hmm. was found in Stephen's room on the floor. The jury heard expect. conflicting statements on who the glasses really belonged to. An optometrist gave a statement that the glasses belonged to David himself, which was in opposition to the statement that David made suggesting they were his mother's. And in a cross-examination, David did not come off as super credible. (laughs) But the optometrist actually changed his mind shortly before testifying and believed that his statement had been changed to say the glasses actually belonged to the mother.
1: Wait. He believed that... He actually believed they belonged to the mother, or his statement was
0: changed? He, he, saying he actually that he changed belonged. his statement to say that the okay. glasses belonged to the mother. Okay. But his statement wasn't changed. So they gave the original statement that he believed uh, they belonged to David. So the jury never gotcha. heard that in his professional opinion, they actually belonged to David's mother. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it doesn't necessarily matter who the glasses belonged to. It was just made used to make him look David look less credible. mm hmm And the next point explains why. The left-hand lens of the glasses were found in his room. That isn't up for debate. But during the original trial, Detective Weir, where, I don't know, Weir. testified that the glasses were found in the open on the floor, which was consistent with the Crown's case that it was dislodged during a struggle with Stephen. However, mm-hmm. it's now accepted that the lens was found under a skateboard or a skate boot under a jacket and was covered in dust, which also may have misled the jury into thinking that because the glasses were in David's room and the lens in Stevens', David had to be part of his death.
1: Yeah. Yeah, when realistically, they could have just been brothers wrestling
0: over something, and... Exactly, and like, got... they could have been, one of them could have been using the glasses for something, it broke, he just took it with him, didn't think about it, left him there.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially if it's not like, uh, I need these glasses to see.
0: There's also David's bloody fingerprints on the rifle, though. His... So bloody fingerprints were found on the rifle that belonged to David, and during the trial, it was assumed that the blood was human blood, because there. I know that's what I was about to say. There was human blood on the rifle, but a test of the fingerprints, like the bloody fingerprints,
1: mm-hmm. didn't
0: test positive for DNA. For hu- yeah. For DNA. For, for human, human DNA. DNA. Wow. Yeah. I'm telling you, there's <laughs> there so was much, no and DNA I'm trying involved. to get through this. So I'm like, yeah. You're good. You're good. You're good. But yeah, there was no human DNA suggesting that the blood may have been from like a possum or a rabbit from like hunting months before.
1: Yeah. And let's face it, if you're hunting, you're not exactly being the cleanliest and wiping your gun off as Which soon as you should.
0: You absolutely should. should. You, you like, absolutely you should. Clean your should. Guns. But anyway. But yeah. Then there's the gurgling noise. The jury was told <clears throat> that only the murderer could have heard Lania gurgling. No. The second court appeal heard contradictory evidence and decided it wasn't that clear cut. And then another court of appeal decided it was, but like it, that there, it was clear cut that there was no way that anyone but the murderer could have heard that. So that's why his appeal was, they were like, nah. Denied. Yeah. Yeah. The Privy Council actually uh, criticized the Court of Appeal for stepping outside of its role of just reviewing Mm -hmm. because, like, they ruled that the Third Court of Appeals had exceeded its role as a reviewing body in deciding the implications of new evidence. I'm just repeating myself, but I'm trying to make it make sense, you know? I know. I know. The council Keep going. also addressed three points which the third court of appeal had relied on in confirming his guilt, which they were not supposed to do. So there's mm. knowledge of a spare key to the rifle case. Who? Dad? Dad had the spare key? It's just that there was a spare key. Oh. It doesn't say who had it, though. It said... Interesting, the way that this was worded, it says bloody rifle was clearer around David's fingerprints.
1: So, maybe whoever did it wiped away? I don't know, but there still would have been
0: some trace amounts of blood there. Yeah. Which is weird. And then there was a spare spare magazine standing upright. So, while the Privy Council said that it should have been decided by a jury and not an appeals court, the Privy Council also felt they didn't need to consider some of the fairly damning evidence. Or maybe it was the appeals court. I don't know. One of the two felt they didn't need to consider some of the fairly damning evidence against David, including blood on yeah. David's opera gloves, which the defense suggested Robin used while killing the family, which, why would a guy who was going to kill himself wear gloves yeah i don't get i mean that, that just doesn't make sense yeah, yeah. also steven's blood was found on david's black shorts was found on david's black shorts on david's shorts steven's Stephen's blood blood. his brother's yes. blood okay so steven's blood was found on david's shorts and there's the timing of the washing machine then and david seemed to be injured Like, he had injuries that were consistent with a struggle. Yeah. And also, apparently, Robin had a full bladder, which I'm not sure what that means. But somebody felt the need to list it, so I do too, you know? Meaning, I guess meaning
1: that if he was going to kill himself, why wouldn't he have gone to the bathroom so he would have died,
0: like... I have no idea. More comfortably? I don't know. Maybe? I don't know. Although the Privy Council said Bain should be kept in custody, he was released on bail in May of 2007. Mm-hmm. The retrial took place in March of 2009 in Christchurch instead of Dunedin because the case was so huge, they felt no one could be impartial enough to be on the jury. Which is yeah. saying something because Dunedin is one of the largest cities. <laughs> mm-hmm. During mm-hmm. that time, several witnesses had, had passed, And many of the exhibits had been lost or destroyed and new evidence had arisen so slightly evens out not really though the Court of Appeal decided after both sides appealed on the admissibility of various pieces of evidence that some items would not be presented to the jury and suppressed any mention of these until after the verdict This included statements from two high school friends that David had told them in 1989 how he could commit a sexual offense against a female jogger and use his paper route as an alibi by arriving at the usual time at some of the houses where he was often seen, but delivering to other houses much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Evidence was also suppressed from a friend of Arwa that David had been intimidating the family with his gun, the gun that was later used in the murders. Mm Mm-hmm. Baines lawyers also won an appeal that some disputed evidence wouldn't be presented to the jury during the retrial. The disputed evidence was about a portion of the recording of David's 111 call in which he was breathing heavily, and a detective reviewed it in 2007 in preparation for the retrial and believed he heard the words, I shot the prick. Yeah. Expert witnesses agreed that it was unclear if the sounds were even speech or what he might have said, though. So Mm -hmm. The jury for the retrial was sworn in on March 6, 2009. David Bain pleaded not guilty to the five murder charges. So David had told police he heard his sister Alainia gurgling, which might mean he was present between her second gunshot wound and the final shot to her head, which killed her. But the body makes some odd sounds even after death, so I'm not totally sold on that one. That was a big thing that they were trying to push through on this one. On this trial again. Well,
1: well, but also if if he had gotten there and she was still somehow alive, if he wasn't the one who killed her,
0: then he might have still heard gurgling. Yeah, exactly. There, uh, yeah, the body does some weird shit when people die. Oh, weird yeah. stuff. Something else that's interesting was that Robin was found lying. In the lounge, lying on his side between the coffee table and a beanbag, dead from a single shot to the head with a rifle next to him. But his fingerprints weren't on the rifle. Yeah. Whose were? David's. Mm -hmm. And they were Mm bloody, but they didn't have human DNA on them. So, interesting. So, like I said, some of the evidence was lost, destroyed, or never collected, including blood samples from under Robin's fingernails. Nice. Yes. So, some of the stuff that were destroyed included Laniant's diaries and letters written to her mother that were destroyed, although they might have contained allegations of incest. Nobody will ever know. Yeah. The retrial lasted three months, which with 130 witnesses being called by the Crown and 54 by the defense. The last evidence presented was on May 27th, 2009. Jury retired for several hours the following week to consider their verdict after hearing closing statements from the prosecution and defense. Mm -hmm. June 5th, 2009, the jury found him not guilty on all five charges. After the verdict, one of the jurors... See, one of the jurors was hugged by David Bain outside the courthouse and another juror shook his hand. That evening... These two jurors, the same two jurors, briefly joined a party being held by Bain supporters to which they had been invited by Joe Karam, the rugby player. Reports vary on why and when they left. Some people say it was only after a few moments because they felt that it might be inappropriate. And other people say that it was because they were asked to leave. It's very questionable. It's very questionable. and. It's prompted calls for a review of how jurors are prepared for such cases. There, yeah. there was opposition justice spokesperson, uh, Leanne Dalziel, said that the jury should have been briefed together after giving their verdict, but doesn't sound like it. I don't know. I feel like that whole thing could have just been... ...handled slightly differently? Slightly different, yeah.
1: Because you really don't want any sort of bias in that.
0: Yeah. A journalist... And it sounds like there was some bias. Don't even get me started. Journalist Martin Van Bainen noted that the same two jurors spent the last three weeks of the trial giggling and writing messages to each other. One juror said that each of the jurors were approached during the retrial by people believed who believed ugh, David was guilty... But it doesn't say anything about whether they were approached by people who believe the opposite. Opposite. Yeah. yeah. It's so weird. It throws me off so much. A group Sketch. Huh? Sketch. Sketch. Yeah. All the sketch. <laughs> a group of Bane supporters has launched a petition advertising newspapers nationwide calling for him to be denied compensation for the... wait, what? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I read it weird. A group of Robin Bain, the father, supporters, launched a petition advertised in newspapers nationwide calling for David Bain to be denied any compensation for the years he spent in prison after being convicted of murdering his family. Mm -hmm. Bain has asked that his belongings used as evidence at trial, including the rifle that was used to kill, kill his family, be returned to him. In the aftermath of the final appeal... Michael Bain, the brother of Robin, gave an interview um, to The Listener, which I guess is a uh, magazine, uh, newspaper. Yeah, something. some sort something. He was prompted. Uh, so he said he had troubled feelings about the hearsay brought against his brother and the rest of the family while attention focused on David. He said the Bain and Cullen families have been saddened by the allegations against Robin and believe that the police did a magnificent job, which that in a, in and of itself is questionable because they lost a lot of evidence. Evidence, yeah. So, I don't know about that. They're they're doing a bang-up job at it. In, and they didn't even collect some evidence to begin with, so. Mm-hmm. In March of 2010, Bain launched an application for compensation for wrongful imprisonment But his case fell outside cabinet rules on compensation, meaning the government was not obliged to pay him anything. But they might do so if he's able to establish his innocence. Um, There was literally so much more that I wanted to add to this, but it could have gone on for too long. Like, I think at one point he had the house burned down. Uh, There's so much. There's so much, but that's as far as I could get.
1: And thing, something like that would just make it seem like
0: he is 100% guilty. Right. And let me actually fact check that because that might have been another one. So it was not David who uh, burned down the house. He did agree to it, but it was actually Michael Bain, uh, the brother of the father, the uncle. So why did Michael Bain want the house burned down then? Apparently, it was semi-derelict. So, there's that. It was run down. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, there was a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And on top of that, David Bain has an actual website dedicated to... I don't know if he started it. I don't know who started it. But there's a website that is specifically about the case about his um, how he thinks that how his supporters think that the police botched the case how they um, it, it's very targeted in the direction of he is completely innocent there is absolutely no way that he did it, not even a little bit it's just, it's so it's, I don't know, I don't know
1: I don't know the guy, so I can't pass judgment. And the law has That's already what said do. what they're going to say. That's what we do, Rachel. I know. We pass judgment on people we don't know. That's just... That's who we are. No, I
0: just... It's... There are so many points that are towards him that make him seem so yeah. guilty that I don't... That makes me think it's him. But then there are little things that make me think it's not. But if it's neither one of them... Then who did it? Then who did it? Yeah. Because and that's... his fingerprints weren't on the gun. The father's fingerprints weren't on the gun. But. And if he's
1: going to kill himself, he wouldn't wipe the gun off and then do it. Right. I mean, that just doesn't make sense.
0: But then the bloody fingerprints weren't human blood. Yeah. Somebody wore the opera gloves. I don't know. You go. It's your turn.
1: So it's an unsolved. (laughs) Yes and no, yes. Yes and no,
0: okay. It's technically unsolved because, just because he, they couldn't find enough evidence to say that he did it one way or the other. Yeah. Um, He was acquitted, but that doesn't mean that he didn't do it. It just means they did not have evidence to confirm that he did it, but that doesn't mean that there is absolute evidence that the father did it. Yeah. So... Okie doke. You go.
1: My story this week is the Larnik Castle, which one source also called it Kiwi Castle. Oh, I've never heard of that. Not, not sure how accurate that is. My sources are werewolves.com, <laughs> <laughs> uh, larnikcastle.co.nz, stuff.co.nz nzgettinglost.co.nz, hauntedduckland.com, Wikipedia, findery.com, odt.co.nz, and nzherald.co.nz. I'm glad that you got a lot of local sources. Right. Okay. Learnit Castle is what many refer to as a mock castle. It's um, it's called a castle, but it really didn't have the medieval fortifications that are so often you know scene mm. with actual castles so it's it's really just a really big house mansion like yours yeah. if
0: they if you added stone
1: like well no like mine if we added stone in about 10 bedrooms oh. Oh, yeah so a, <laughs> a, a fancy
0: um stone So mansion. a
1: fancy mansion yes uh but the land that the castle was built on was purchased by William James Mundy Larnick in 1870. Once cleared and leveled, the construction began in 1871, and it took roughly 200 workers to build the house. I thought you were gonna say it took
0: 200 years to build. And uh, it took get 200 shocked, years get shocked, for
1: a completed, shocked. a completed mansion. Yes. While most of the stones for the castle came from the nearby. Basalt quarry. Others were imported from all over the world. I mean, literally, China, um, Germany, Italy, France. I mean, just all over. So it was a
0: patchwork of rocks. <laughs> it was a
1: patchwork. Larnick himself would often call the house the camp, and the term castle wasn't coined for the house until December eighth, eighteen seventy four, by the press. Uh, just a few days after William and his wife Eliza moved in, hmm. the castle saw tragedy early on in its life. And not long after living there, Larnick's wife Eliza passed away due to a stroke.
0: Oh, Eliza.
1: <laughs> he then promptly married her younger sister, who just so happened to live with the family. Ha- no, Ham- not Ham- Peggy.
0: Ham-
1: no. No, her name was Mary, (laughs) Um, who just so happened to live with the family during the time and was very, very beautiful. She, however, also passed away five years later because of blood poisoning. Oh, damn. Yeah, he's not having the greatest of luck. At this point, he's 57 years old and then meets and marries 35-year-old Constance.
0: Gotta love a Constance.
1: Constance and you know just a cool 22 years between the two of them oh he's 57 she's 35 oh,
0: okay uh i mean
1: five mm,
0: yeah i've heard worse. five years
1: later in eight there have been worse in 1898 after his favorite his favorite daughter's death
0: <laughs> that his is so 1800 my favorite daughter
1: my favorite daughter has passed away. Ignore the fact that I have, like, eight other children. My favorite daughter passed away. <laughs> and finding out that his wife and son were having an affair. <gasps> yeah. Oh, no. Larnik, unfortunately, lost his life to suicide in October oh. of 1898. After some legal battles, the Larnick family finally sold the house in 1906. It then changed ownership several times. It was used as a lunatic asylum, a soldier's hospital, and a nun's retreat until the summer of 1967. Barry and Margaret Barker took a vacation to New Zealand and stumbled upon the castle in a state of disrepair. The two had known nothing about it when they made an offer to the owner while talking on the front porch. They were the only potential buyers Who were able to come up with a deposit on it, and they got it. They then moved in on March 3rd,
0: 1967. The dream, right? Let me just own a mansion.
1: Oof. The couple saw potential in the property, with you know a booming tourist industry fast approaching. However, they did not anticipate customers showing up quite as quickly as they did. Customers. Uh, Customers. Did they make it into, did I miss something? It's a, it's a castle.
0: Yeah?
1: People like to visit castles.
0: Okay, I just didn't know if they had turned it into a hotel, if they had, like, made a shop, just just, like, visit. At this, at this point, no. Okay. At this point, no. People just showed up on
1: their front door. Damn. Hey, we heard you got the only castle in New Zealand. We'd like to come check it out.
0: Sounds about right, yeah.
1: Of course, you know, later on there is another castle, but at the time... Of course. This was the only castle. Yeah. Uh, as the building was empty and in a state of disrepair, the first few customers were not completely enamored with it.
0: <laughs> of course. Uh, After if it was us, we'd be
1: like, wow. <laughs> yeah, we'd be like, oh my Fancy. god, it's so beautiful. It's so old. After many repairs, including a new floor in the kitchen because it was non-existent at the time of purchase, as well as plumbing and electrical repairs, and they installed a garden along the outside, like a very beautiful garden. Aww. Finally, the place was more ready for customers, and they came. Lernick Castle receives roughly 120,000 guests per oh. year and is open 365 days. Oh, no. Literally every day of the Break. year. In 1994... Fast Do you love
0: slightly.
1: And love work in your life. <sighs> Valid. In 1994, a play called Larnac Castle of Lies was being performed by Dunedin's Fortune Theater in the ballroom of the castle. Ooh. Over a hundred guests sat in the ballroom while the performers did the play, and, you know, a storm just so happened to start brewing outside. Mm. Suddenly, doors began opening and closing all on their own, and at one point during the play, just as the actor who was playing Larnik shot himself, there was a blinding light all over the room. Oh. Margaret Barker assured the questioning guests that this was a theatrical trick. However, when the stage manager of the production was questioned, they informed her that this was not an effect. Oh. And it must, it must have been lightning.
0: Must have been. Sure.
1: Minnie... Believe that this occurrence was William Larnick making it known that he did not enjoy the play. <laughs> he is very critical. critical.
0: Everyone's a critic.
1: Very critical. Other reports of ghostly happenings are that of touching and pushing by the spirits. One guest and his wife were standing in the music room when they felt something come and stand between them. Suddenly, the two were just pushed apart. Leave room for Jesus. This. Yeah. <laughs> uh the two stood their ground although slightly confused about what happened but then they were pushed again <laughs> finally wife got smart and decided to walk off and just stand in a different spot okay. just to see what would happen and again they were both pushed okay okay <laughs> The same couple then went into another room and they said that it felt like something was literally suffocating them because they could not breathe. Don't like that. Nope. Another family also visited the castle to celebrate their daughter's 13th birthday. Yep. Super cute. When they were settling in for the night, they heard this is the weirdest thing. They heard a ball being rolled up to their bedroom door. Okay. Yeah. This went on for a little while before the ball finally rolled down the stairs, audibly. Initially, the family didn't check. That is, until it rolled down the Mm -hmm. stairs, because they thought a child had fallen down the stairs. Yeah, that's fair. And that's when they were like, oh shit, we gotta (laughs) go make sure that this kid is okay. But there was no one there. Mm -hmm. When they told employees of what happened the following morning, they were told that other guests have experienced this the noises of children playing, and they believed it was possible that the children ghost just wanted to play with a 13-year-old who was in the room. So, uh, kind of. But where did the kid ghost
0: come from? I don't know. Okay.
1: Nothing told me. The only thing I could think of is larnix spirits. children. Oh,
0: well, I was going to say, like, spirits attracting other spirits, I guess.
1: If there's a portal, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that's one thing I actually did forget to mention, is that after everything was all set up and running in the castle, they turned it into a sort of, kind of, like, bed and breakfast type thing. Of course. Where if you pay, it's 260 Oh, it's still open. Whatever the currency is there. Yeah, it's still open. Oh. You can pay 260 for lack of a better word, because I don't know what it is, dollars, whatever the currency mm. is. You can pay that for one night. And you get to stay in a room in the castle, and you get a dinner, and you get to hear all the stories, and it just sounds super cool, so I want to do it. But basically, that's what they did for their daughter's 13th birthday, and I'm super jealous. On to another bullet point, so I'm not jealous of a 13-year-old the rest of my (laughs) life. It is said that the ballroom is a hot spot for activity. Apparently, sometimes... How much
0: did you say it costed per night?
1: Two hundred and sixty whatever the currency is there. At
0: least that's what the website that I
1: used. That is one
0: seventy five U.S. dollars. That, let's go after let's go. All those, yeah.
1: after this. Yes. Apparently, sometimes the door will not open if you try to go into the ballroom. Like you can just push and push and push on the door and it will not
0: open. That that's such a common thing with ghosts. I don't get it.
1: Uh, No, you can't come in here. This is
0: my room. That makes a bit more sense. Which,
1: which, the ballroom was a gift to William Larnick's daughter. His favorite daughter. The one who passed away. His favorite daughter. His
0: favorite daughter.
1: (laughs) The castle has been featured as a location for filming movies such as Hanlon and the intro scenes of Shaker Run.
0: I don't know what either one of those I don't know are. What those
1: are I don't either. It has also been featured on shows such as Ghost Hunt, Spookers, and Ghost Hunters International. Ooh, yes. Which did you watch an episode? I used Ghost Hunt. I Yay. did. I used Ghost Hunt and Ghost Hunters International. I, mean, I forgot to mention those in my sources, but I was
0: gonna get to it anyway. I knew you said you were watching something. I just didn't. Yeah,
1: two things. According to Ghost Hunt, which was um, season one, episode one from 2006, there have been 26 reported sightings in that castle. Wow. That's not a lot, but also this was 2006. also
0: way more than I got, so...
1: Yes. During um, an interview with Sophie Barker, who is the manager of the castle since her mother's retirement... She admitted that whenever she was asked what it is like to live in a castle, she would always say, cold and scary. Cold and scary. Yes, cold cold and scary. scary. She even admitted to having an experience. She could not, she says, yes, it was an experience, but also that "Mm." she's could also not be an experience. So, she was in the castle during the witching hour on the telephone when she felt a presence come into the room. Of course, at the time, she thought that this was just her brother coming home. However, when she turned around, no one was there.
0: Oh, I don't like that.
1: Yeah. A tour guide named Deborah told of a time when she was giving a tour and speaking with a guest, saying... If a ghost was here, then it had to be the ghost of Eliza due to how she died, her utter misery, seeing her husband married twice after her, oh, yeah. and her son having an affair with one of the wives. The wives. Insane. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, I'd be pretty pissed would, off as a ghost I'm if I saw
0: all that going definitely on. Definitely be pissed.
1: Like, yeah. So, as they were laughing... Deborah just so happened to be pushed down the stairs by
0: an unseen force. Well, <laughs> just happened to be pushed. Just, just so happened to just pushed, pushed down the there stairs. There is, I will give it, I will give it to her. There is a definite difference between being pushed down the stairs and falling down the stairs, so. Yes,
1: yes, which they did talk with her on Ghost Hunters International. They were like, look, there's a little bit of a lip on this stair that you said you tripped, that you said you were pushed mm-hmm. on. It's possible that you accidentally tripped and you didn't know you tripped and you just fell. And it felt like you were being pushed. And I'm sitting here like, no. no. Like, when you trip, there's that,
0: like, you feel it that, like, on your on your foot.
1: And or at least on your leg. Your you leg, feel it something. on your leg. But when yeah. you're
0: pushed specifically, that's at a completely different point of your body. What was that? Yeah. I don't know. It was a banshee. Okay. Sure.
1: Um, yeah, now I'm feeling I should turn my lights on. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> ah. Okay, so she suffered a bloody nose, some pretty bruised up bloodied knees, but luckily she walked away unscathed other than that. During the ghost hunt investigation, the investigator named Michael walked into one room and experienced kind of instant chills to the point that he made that weird noise when he felt it. (laughs) Well, kind (laughs) of. His was a little bit louder. His was like, "Ah, (laughs) ah. Afterwards, he said, That it felt like a wind was swirling around him, so like he was in the center of a tornado. Then another investigator heard a door shut behind her as she was leaving Eliza's room. Kind of sketch, but also, yeah. They also found some handprints on the outside of a window in Larnick's bedroom. This was peculiar because this room is on the second floor with a considerable drop if you accidentally fell off the roof. Is the window open? It was in a place that would not be easy to reach. Oh. Yeah. Like, even if it did open. Michael, right after that weird spine-tingling chill, took a photo of an empty doorway, and upon review later on, they found a dark silhouette of a person standing there. Spooky. Super spooky. It actually kind of looked like um, stereotypical, like, monk garb. Oh, like silhouetted, like bald head. He had the, the hood and the. It looked like stereotypical monk garb, which. They did say that it was a nun retreat, so.
0: Oh yeah, they did, didn't they? I was like, where where would a monk maybe?
1: (laughs) 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 The investigators, however, compared this figure to Be Larnack himself. Then in Ghost Hunters International, they interviewed a night worker who had a similar experience to Deborah. As he was locking up one night, he had turned all of the lights out, closed all the doors, and turned to walk down the stairs when he felt someone push him. Hmm? As he reached the bottom of the stairs and he turned back around, he saw uh, that last door that he had just closed mysteriously just open. Oh,
0: no, Oh.
1: Yep. I would hate that. Sometimes during a private dinner at night in the Larnick Library, hosts can often smell extremely strong cigar smoke and port, which the investigative team did debunk by taking a hair dryer to the tables, which released smells similar to that of port wine and cigars.
0: They really need to clean their tables. They really need to clean their
1: tables. But also, something like that, if, if it's it it will
0: permeate the wood
1: <laughs>
0: if it if, if there's a lot I'm... if there's a yeah. lot
1: yeah during one part of the investigations Andy and Rob hear someone shouting they then heard a voice say hello 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 and Andy ran downstairs to try and catch whoever the person was he actually thought that it was fellow investigator Donna but she was clear across the other side of the castle oh They were not able to explain this at all. They also did not get it on recording. Sad. But still. Donna and Dustin are then doing an investigation in one of the back rooms, and they see a dark shadow in one corner, Mm. and then a bright flash of light in another.
0: Not a fan of, like, shadow people and
1: shit like that. God, no. God, no. Although that video you sent me was pretty cool. Yeah. It was like was, peekaboo. Was <laughs> when Dustin decided to confront the figure, the black mass then ducked behind something, which we can't see this, but they're describing it as it's happening to them. Yeah. Mm. Donna then makes the comment that there is a depressing feeling that they just walked in on a dinner party that they were not invited to. Mm. The two then heard rattling in the corner of the room, which, oh, I didn't make the connection. The back room is the ballroom. Uh. Okay. Okay, Back room, ballroom. Yep. Uh, 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 Because all they said was back room in the episode. The two then heard rattling in the corner of the room, and when they went to investigate, they found a stack of plates. They started trying to debunk everything that they heard. You know, they tried jumping up and down. They tried walking past it. They tried doing the really quick whoop and mm. moving it. Nothing made them rattle the way that they heard unless mm. someone was physically picking them up and moving them and shifting and playing with them.
0: I do like shows where they try to, like, recreate debunk. the things. Yeah, yeah. To see if they happen again. I do like that.
1: Yep. That is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Ghost Hunters growing up, because they did. They tried to debunk everything. And so many episodes were like, yeah, we debunked everything. This place isn't haunted. (laughs) I mean, it happens. Okay. As Barry and Brian, uh, two of the investigators from Ghost Hunters, are heading uh, to the ballroom to set up some more cameras after the whole plate incident. Mm. Brian sees a person standing in the corner of one of the coat rooms. No. In the light of Barry's flashlight. Nope. But, you know, it was just one of those quick sweeps of the flashlights. So no, by the time that. that Brian put his flashlight in that spot, it was gone. Mm-mm. So then they tried to, you know, investigate it a little bit. And when they turn around to look at the other rooms... Barry then sees sees someone standing in another, smaller coat room.
0: No! No! Sorry.
1: But again, no one was there. (sighs) They then enter the ballroom and almost instantly hear the exact same plates rattling that Donna and Dustin heard. They snapped a photo and... Fun story, kind of. They managed to catch something in the photo... No. Yeah, just a little bit something. So there is, you know, their ballroom is tables, chairs, that's where people are eating, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. There's a figure just kind of standing there towards the back in the middle of all the chairs and all the tables. So they tried to debunk it. Yeah. Thinking, oh, it's just a reflection. Nope there's nothing reflective over there. Okay. So they can't do it. Just a random figure standing there. Whatever. Cool, cool, cool. cool, 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 cool. During the findings of you know how ghost and ghost hunters does things. They do the investigation, they do the findings, and they do the mm-hmm. reveal to the customer. Yeah. During the findings, they came across a video where they had put the camera on those plates that mm-hmm. kept shaking. The plates didn't shake, but you could hear bottles rattling Oh. when no one was in the room. And the plates weren't moving. And the plates weren't moving. Huh. Yeah. Then when they sit down with Deborah, who, if you remember, was a guide for the castle, Mm -hmm. the weirdest thing happened. What? The fire alarm went off. Oh? Like right as they were about to get into everything they found, the fire alarm went off.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. somebody and, doesn't want them to know.
1: Mm-hmm. And she was like, them. I shouldn't be surprised because this isn't the first time it's happened. But. but the fire alarm went off. Yeah. <laughs> and it was right in the middle of them trying to tell about what they found, that's which
0: just, that's is. specific timing.
1: It, yes. That's why I'm so like, the fire alarm went off. <laughs> It's weird. Even the firefighter who came, he was like, Yeah, the fire alarm shouldn't have gone off. It, nothing caused it.
0: Do they have a mint? Ma- oh. what,
1: hap- what it is, is a lot of their fire alarms are the types where you have to break the glass and pull oh. the lever. So, of course, no glass is broken, no lever is oh. pulled. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. When they get back inside, the team shows Deborah an image that they took with their IR camera in the ballroom. In this image, they point out that they know where every single person is of their team in the ballroom. You know, this person's standing here, this person's here, yada, yada. Then Deborah points out as she's looking at this picture with him, that there's a man who's looking back at them from the corner. He's in the complete opposite corner of all the investigators and she's like who's that man and they're like exactly <laughs> nope
0: nope nope nope, nope.
1: So, no so but this this whole thing kind of made her believe that she was it kind of verified to her that things were going on cuz she she yeah. wasn't actually a full believer yeah, but, but it gave that, her that, a little that, something
0: like, you know, like you know something odd's going on, but to yeah. have somebody give you like
1: almost like hard evidence, yes. yeah, like I can't say hard evidence because even pictures can be whatever, but right. almost hard evidence, mm. and that is the Larnack Castle.
0: I like that. I've never heard of that before, and I'm really surprised. I haven't either, and now
1: I definitely have to go and stay in the yes. Larnack Castle. So, um first chance we can to get out of the u.s
0: i don't want to wake up and see some shadow figure in the corner though
1: but see most of the activity is happening around the ballrooms, so Uh i feel like actually in the rooms that we would be staying it would be safe or maybe yeah all righty then let's go all southern this is the conclusion of our show Welcome to the conclusion. Thank you for listening to us today. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube
0: at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop-up, pop-up, pop-up. Pop-up, pop-up, pop-up. We do pop-up. Up. Up. Also, please, please,
1: please send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. We would love to do some listener stories of some sort. I know we are. Yes, we are going to start compiling them from people we may or may not know because we really want to do listener stories. Yeah. Um, Also, check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. We're going to start working on that very soon to see what all we can do to spice it up.
0: Yes. Um, our theme music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins.
1: Their websites can be found in the description below.
0: As per usual, I will remind you, rate, review, subscribe.
1: As per usual, <laughs> As per usual rate, usual, review, subscribe. subscribe. All right. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As per usual, goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.